Welcome to the Bluegrass Podcast, episode 20. I cannot believe that we're here, and I'm hoping we're heading straight for 50. Before we begin, if there are any guests you'd like us to talk to, questions you may have about cannabis, or want us to review your favorite strain, remember that you can reach out on any of our social medias, links below, as well as directly on our website. Thank you for listening. We're excited to keep delivering the conversations that focus on small farms first, patient advocacy, and how to get the best cannabis and cannabis community possible from legalization. If you've enjoyed this podcast, also remember that we have a Patreon. For the price of a cup of coffee, you can help support us. Consider donating the $1 or $2 to help us keep the mic on. Now on with the show, and today we're talking with Johnny Casali, second-generation owner and operator of Huckleberry Hill Farms, a humble county small farm that's staying afloat in rough seas right now. From family to prison to public advocate, Johnny has a great story and great insight into the consequences of not legalizing cannabis properly. I don't want to give away any more, so let's go ahead and light up, dive right in, and thank you again for stopping by the Bluegrass Podcast. So you've got a pretty interesting history and in how you entered cannabis. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because you sort of hit the industry early on in a way that many people might later on, but is kind of a hard stop for many. Yeah, you know this has always been a way of life for me, whether or not it was um, working on a permitted farm or working on a traditional um, illegal farm. And it was just a, a way of, um, of being able to create a lifestyle of our own um, and kind of getting out of the city and coming up to the country, you know, growing cannabis. You know, I moved here on the same piece of property I live today and, um, you know, cannabis was just another small bit of income that we did here and able to survive in the country. So we were commercial albacore fishermen, um, commercial crabbers, commercial salmon fishermen. We were part-time loggers in the summertime and um, had a small nursery, cut firewood in the wintertime and sold it to a local merchant for $100 a cord as a family. And cannabis was just a small little bit of that income. And as the different um, industries started to go by the wayside, like logging regulations started to, you know, really get bad and kind of logging stopped for a minute around here. And same with fishing and stuff like that. Cannabis just became a bigger part of our lifestyle. So one, one industry would go away. We would add a little bit more of that existing industry, which was cannabis. And, um, Back then, enforcement really wasn't that bad. It was illegal, and it was something that, unless you had a, a large amount of it out in the open, um, they didn't really bother you. It was something that everybody really supplemented their income with. So I didn't know, growing up as a kid, one person that didn't go cannabis. But we also, at the same time, kept it a very a uh, close secret amongst our tightest knit friends because we knew it was illegal. We knew that really loose lips sunk ships and that if we, we shared it with too many people, we were really jeopardizing our family and, uh, mm -hmm. and their safety and their freedom. And so I looked at cannabis following my mom around since I was, I guess, as early as I can remember 10 
you know, it, it, it was the same as growing a fruit tree or, or growing vegetables in the vegetable garden for me. It, it wasn't anything bad. It was just a plant. And it's still, to me, just a plant. It's an amazing plant. It has a, a lot of amazing um, things that it can provide people, you know, relief of stress, you know, arthritis, sleep, uh, people that are having a hard time sleeping. And there's just so many other different medicinal values that we haven't been able to discover yet. But um, in my book, in, in my life, it's a, a magical plant. And it's something that's really given me a lifestyle that has been like no other. And while you were growing up and a part of you all growing cannabis, you actually had to make some hard decisions, didn't you? Especially with your family and like the community that you were in, you know, being faced with jail time, I believe. Yeah, you know, it was it was somewhat of a reality to all of at least my friends and my family's friends that, you know, this was an illegal thing. And like we didn't really believe you could go to jail for growing this plant because so many people in the Emerald Triangle and Humboldt County and Southern Humboldt County specifically, you know, it was just a way of life. And and we saw people's crops get taken, but nobody ever really got in trouble. So our rationale being naive country boys and country girls um, growing up was, well, if you got busted for growing the plant, you would just get probation. And then at that point, you could figure out how to go forward with your life. But at, to be honest, the risk was kind of worth the reward, or at least we thought, you know, mm -hmm. um, the price per pound back then was, you know, three or $4,000 a pound. So even as a 20 year old kid, if I grew, if I grew 20 pounds, you know, that was a, a lot of money back then. And it was a lot of money for a 20 year old kid that worked just mainly during the summertime and, and then been, was able to live the rest of his um, year out in the way he wanted, whether or not it was fishing, whether or not it was surfing or, or just running around as a, as a free kid. And I know that doesn't seem real and it sounds kind of naive and <laughs> I guess in, in ways it was, but we just, it was just an amazing life. And we lived in an amazing community that built a community of its own. We didn't rely on the government or we didn't lie, rely on the counties to build our fire departments. We donated money to those fire departments. We built all the schools in these hills. You know, um, we were one giant big family. And, you know, being from here, we were sheltered from the real world and the reality that there was a difference between state and federal rules. Mm -hmm. And even even to this day, that doesn't make very much sense to me. And and it doesn't make probably much sense to your listeners unless they've they've known somebody that's been through something like that or or they're you know practicing law because it, it's really confusing that laws can be so different between state and federal rules. And so, you know, growing a plant, whether or not it was in Humboldt County. Um, I think for me, it was always this, the same, going to be the same punishment, whether or not who, who ended up getting me in trouble. So long story short, uh, my parents left the, and Ronald Reagan had declared the war on drugs and enforcement started to get worse. Um, there was multiple helicopters that would fly every summer, um, all summer long and mm -hmm. do aerial surveillance, looking for cannabis and, um, most of the time they would just drop down and cut up, cut your plants down and then they would haul it off in a net 
and they would leave as long as it wasn't in what they considered the curtilage of your house. It was considered an open field search and they couldn't really prove it was yours unless they caught you there and blah, blah, blah. But um, so they bought a commercial fishing boat and they decided to follow their dreams and they they sailed to the South Pacific, to China, to Alaska, to Washington and spent 11 months out of the year from from the time I was 20 on um, following mm-hmm. their dreams and living on the ocean. And I stayed back here with my best friend to, to do what I love to do. And that was, I learned from my mom how to grow this amazing plant. And she taught me that the more TLC that you gave this plant, the better it would come out in the end. And so it, it became this challenge to me really to, to try to discover and develop and produce some of the best cannabis in the world. And, um, I just became very infatuated with growing it and, and developing it and breeding it. And, um, you know, I ended up getting turned in by this guy at the end of, uh, our road. And one morning I, I woke up to 30 federal agents that showed up here at my fed, uh, at my doorstep and, they served a search warrant here at my place and it was nothing like I had ever imagined it would be. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, they, they left after they confiscated some stuff and took whatever records they were going to do. And they handed me a little yellow speeding ticket. And they said, if we want to contact you, we'll, we'll, we'll let you know. And so a year and a half went by with nothing really happening. And I just thought maybe they made a mistake or, you know, it wasn't worth it. I was just a, you know, a pot farmer, a cannabis farmer. And, um, in the big picture, it was just a plant. And actually it was a year and four months to the day they showed back up here with an arrest warrant. Um, I was hauled down to San Francisco federal courthouse building where I had to post a $275,000 bond. My mother put up her house. She put up her fishing boat. She put up pretty much everything that she owned to get me out of jail while I went to court. And for the next three years, I went to San Francisco federal courthouse building and really tried to share with the judge. Cause I was still in disbelief that you could really get in trouble for growing a plant, especially a first time nonviolent offender. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was brought to my attention by my attorney that my bracket that I was looking at federally was 10 years to life in prison with a $4 million fine as a first time nonviolent offender. And, you know, I always hear those numbers and you're like, yeah, okay, well, they always throw that out there and they throwing that out there really um, in hindsight, because they want you to cooperate with them. They want you to rat on your friends or somebody higher up so they can work their way up the chain to the the, to the kingpin or to whatever they think they're getting to. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think a person really has to evaluate who they are and how they were raised in and um, what their beliefs are, because I had to really make a tough choice at one point, whether or not I wanted to cooperate with them, which would mean turning in one of my friends and um, not doing any time. Or if, uh, you know, I wanted to really um, value this community that really entrusted me with their lives. And Mm -hmm. when it came down to it, it was the toughest choice that I ever had to make. Um, but you know, I ended up valuing their lives as much as I valued my life and ended up getting at the end of the day, I ended up getting a a 10 year mandatory minimum and had to do eight years in prison. Um, but it was the single most important choice and the best choice I've ever made in my life. 
Um, and because I think after too. after going to jail and after having the longest prison sentence in the the, the Lompoc prison camp that I was in, mm-hmm. what I realized was um, that it was this community, this family that I had here that was of most value and that money was never going to bring me happiness. So, you know, that was something that my mom had instilled in me and taught to me always at an early age that money would never bring me happiness. And unfortunately, she passed away about a year after I was in jail. And it was really this community that was there for me that helped me through that hardest time when I was in jail. And when I got back out of jail after 3,000 days, it was this community, 50 people from this community that were standing here in my driveway mm-hmm. <laughs> that were here to help me get my life back in order. And when, I, when I'm saying get my life back in order, I'm talking about um, bringing me silverware and plates and toothpaste and toothbrushes and stuff. Um, and really, they really enabled me to be able to readjust back into you know, everyday life and, and, um, really, you know, they're just, just, just part of my family. And that's why I always talk about the Emerald Triangle produces some of the most amazing cannabis in the world, but really it's this community that they move here for, because it's just such an amazing tight knit bonded community that we all had to rely on one another at one point or another. So, um, sorry, I started rambling on there, but uh, I kind of got lost in my direction. But you know, now ironically, I'm a permitted, I'm permitted by the county of Humboldt, and I'm also a, an annual license holder with the state of California. So it's uh, it's been an amazing journey to this point, and you know, the struggles continue for the small farmer and, and really what kind of product we're producing in in today's market. And um, I'm just really grateful to be able to do do something that I love to do mm-hmm. that my mom taught me how to do and um and be participating in, in creating history in one way or another and you know we've tried to differentiate our farm from big ag by you know getting all these different cert- certifications like sun and earth certified um dra- uh, we're also a fish, the only farm in the state of California that is fish friendly certified. And um, so we have all these certifications that really stand for our values and our beliefs. Um, but what we've done differently, I think, to, to really uh, compete with the oversupply problem in California is we've developed strains here and I've bred these strains to a strain I used to grow with my mother. So all the strains here are strains that nobody else in the world has so we have strains like that we've named ourselves that are weird names like white thorn rose mom's weed um Mm -hmm. margie's magic and you know they've all won quite a few awards and they're they're gaining traction um but they're not your typical ogs your sour diesels your idicate there's so many different names now that it's just crazy world but um to compete with pig ag on that kind of scale is just really impossible for the small farmers. And, and the reality, it, the reality of it is that, you know, they're predicting between 50 and 60% of the small farmers not making it past this year. Mm -hmm. And I believe going back to the community real quick with your strains, one of the things they also dropped off was a couple of plants. Am I correct? That ended up becoming these strains that you have now. Yeah, so it's really, it's really, that's a, that's a, that's a hard one to overlook. And I don't know how I forgot that, but, you know, 
while I was gone, um, a really good friend of mine held the genetics that my mom had once had because my mom bred those her genetics with his mother's genetics. And together we made an amazing string called paradise punch. And Mm -hmm. when you pheno hunt, you, you find the very best one and that takes quite a few years. And so while I was gone, he kept that pheno of paradise punch alive in his garage for eight years. (laughs) And when I got back, he gave me a couple of those plants and I still have those alive in my garage today. So, um, it was it was uh, one of the most meaningful gestures that any one of my friends had done for me, and and it still plays an important role at Huckleberry Hill Farms today. And that mom's weed, mom's weed, that whitethorn rose, you know, and talking about being a smaller farm, you're also a very collaborative farm. You have a lot of projects going on, not just with like certifications, but like you've worked with Willie's Reserve and Heritage Mendocino and a lot of other cannabis oriented businesses to, you know, keep yourself alive and keep things afloat. Could you talk about that a little bit and sort of navigating being your own brand, but also working with other people in the space? Yeah. Um, you know, we have a saying here in the Emerald Triangle, um, that it'll never be about one of us and it will always be about all of us. And, um, the reality of, of the California market is that they've created a a system where the farmer can't sell directly to the consumer Mm -hmm. or the retailers. So we have to actually, even though we would, we would, we would normally collaborate with different companies. We are almost forced to collaborate because we have to sell through a distribution company. And so I'm working currently with Redwood Roots Distribution, um, who I grew up with Chris Anderson and his team and, he supports all kinds of amazing farmers. I'm also working with Heritage Mendocino, who um, Belle, and uh, I don't know her last name, but she used to work mm-hmm. with Frenchie Cannoli, who was one of the most amazing hash makers in the world, really took some of our strains here, specifically Whitethorn Rose, and, and developed it and extracted it into this live bubble hash that turned out to be the most amazing thing and won first place in the Emerald Cup uh, live Mm -hmm. rosin this year so um and then willie's reserve i started with willie really early where he put three of our four strains that we were growing that year into his jars and really developed a relationship with willie and annie um who's willie's wife and also the willie's reserve team who have been amazing but the reality of it is the the way the california market is constructed right now that most of all businesses, 95% of all the um, cannabis businesses in California are really on the brink of failing just because of overtaxation in the way the, the marketplace is, is orchestrated. And it's, it's really sad to see because California had the opportunity to create the most powerful cannabis industry in the world. And for whatever reason, unbeknownst to maybe a small farmers, why this is happening, it's really turning out to be a very big disappointment. And we're going to see some big changes here, I think, by the end of this year. I think that's an interesting point you bring up with the direct to consumer for small farmers in particular, because so many states are looking to California for how to do things, but they're looking at the first generations rather than as you're talking about what are the solutions that people are turning towards after they're seeing things 
with small farmers go not the direction they were hoping. Do you think the one acre cap was a part of that? The one acre cap was the single most important failure that we we um, we experienced. Once that was lifted, and big ag could just start stacking licenses. Um, the small farmer was was really put into a very bad situation. I mean, now you have companies, um, and I won't name any names, that you know uh, had investor dollars of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in. You know, we're just small farmers growing on the side of the hillside. I'm five thousand square feet. We have glass house that's got five point five million square feet of canopy that can produce more cannabis in one harvest in Humboldt County, the whole county can it in the whole year. So mm-hmm. that's what we're up against. So really what we're relying on, we're relying on the product that we're producing, sun grown outdoor cannabis, as being the best in the world, not even um just what what kind of medicinal value it provides. And and really it's about educating the consumer um, about what we're doing and how we're doing and, and will they align with us in, in, in what we're doing and support us. Um, unfortunately it's kind of with the oversupply without federal legalization in California, you know, it's a race to the bottom. There's, God, the numbers are always really changing all the time, but there's like close to 20 million pounds of cannabis being produced in California with only enough retail shops that are permitted to get rid of between two and 3 million pounds of cannabis. So if there's, let's say 16 million extra pounds being produced in California, why is California continuing to permit farms with that kind of oversupply happening? They know Mm -hmm. what's going to happen to the small farmer. They know we can't compete because our workforce or labor force is so much harder to have up here in the hills like everything is so much harder to to contend with regulations our permitting fees because we're we're growing on the side of mountains we're next to sensitive watersheds so everything's so much more expensive to produce a pound when they've driven the price of a pound down to three and four hundred dollars it costs us between four and five hundred dollars to produce a pound so how Mm -hmm. do we make it and so Really, it's up to the consumer at this point to support us. It's up to the different retail shops to align themselves with those operators that they want to be, um, you know, associated with. And so we're we're all figuring that out now. We've got quite a few amazing retailers that that have supported us. Um, Seven Stars in Oakland is one of the biggest major. Um, operators, retailers that have supported the small farmers. And, you know, we owe just so much for him to stick with us because he can buy product from big ag for, for way less than we, we can sell it to him for. And so in a, in a jar in my quarter, so I sell all my jars in quarters. Um, and so I sell them to my distributor who then sells that, uh, sorry, I give them to my distributor who then in return gives them to the retail shops then in return, if they ever get paid or if they sell them, pays our distributor who then will pay us. So a lot of times we don't get ever get paid because the, all the way down the supply chain, somewhere down the road that does, they don't pay us. But so if, if, if a jar of my product is selling at seven stars or something or another retail shop for $55, I make 
$5 off of that jar. So that's what I'm getting off of the $55 sale. So in between there, there's all the taxes, all the different distribution fees, all the other fees. So selling directly to the consumer would be so ideal, not only for the farmer, but it would be great for the consumer because they could actually afford to go into a retail shop where all the product is tested, all the product is clean versus having to not go to a retail shop because they can't afford it and go to the guy on the corner of the street because at least he's selling it for half the price, which is, you know, probably the same exact product. Exactly. And Does I that think makes any sense? No, it made perfect sense. And I think you're a hundred percent right. And I think when you're talking about educating the consumer, that's another big point towards direct to consumer is this whole idea of tourism. Somebody comes out, you educate them on your product, you explain to them why it is that your product is what it is. And then at the end of the tour, you can have a tasting, you can do direct to consumer, you can keep things in house to keep your quality standards too. You don't have to rely on others. Yeah. So that, that would be ideal. And it seems so simple. Like when you say mm -hmm. it like that, it just makes so much sense. So what could be happening and, you know, I'm not into conspiracies and all this stuff, but maybe there's some people that are very influential in the California market that mm -hmm. really don't want it to be that way. And that's what we're all starting to believe is that, you know, somebody else that's pushing this agenda just doesn't really want us around. And so this is a great way to not have us around. So maybe mm -hmm. it is what they want it to be. And that's really unfortunate, not only for the thousands of families and stuff that live in the Emerald Triangle, but it's also very sad for the consumer that maybe eventually, if we're all gone, isn't going to have a chance to experience some of these um, legacy strains that have been around forever. You know, they say that Humboldt County is like the Amazon jungle of genetics and that, you know, one of us maybe holds the key to, to having a strain that maybe can possibly cure cancer or autism or some other amazing ailment that hasn't ever been figured out yet. So, you know, mm -hmm. for us to go away and those different strains to go away is really jeopardizing a, a major opportunity that the world has. And so it would be a very sad day and we're pretty resilient and we're all fighting and scrapping and scrambling and trying to figure it out um, on how just to survive until next year. And I know exactly what you mean with that sort of hesitation with conspiracy where it's like, you don't want to say the wrong thing. And I think what you're touching on is that sort of corporate apathy, I think I'll say, where you don't want to put malicious intent in there, but definitely people are being hurt by the consequences of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a little overwhelming to try to think of the big picture too much and um, trying to just actually slow things down a little bit and just take it day by day and just create some of the most amazing strains that, that I can create and kind of let, let the product speak for itself. And we, we do have one of uh, three one of the three tourism licenses that are in Humboldt County right now. So we're, mm -hmm. we're able to give tours and, and really share with people um, what the small farmer is all about. And what, and it's when, when I'm, we're giving tours here at my farm, it's never about just my farm. We have a, mm -hmm. a, 
a mountain that we've created that we call Farmers Mountains. And there's logos on burls with statements from those farmers about their values or beliefs that are along this little trail. We call it Farmers Mountain. People can go and read about other farms. There's currently 35 other farms on this mountain because these are these are my family. Mm. (laughs) These are my people. And Mm -hmm. and it's not going to feel good to be the only one left standing. It has to be about all of us. It can't be about one of us. And so we're all special and unique in our own ways. And and we all have something special to offer the consumer. And, And it's never really about money for us. It's about getting these people and sharing what our life's work's been about and letting them have this experience. Because the one thing that we always tell, you know, tourists that come here are consumers. It's what makes me feel good might not make you feel good. So I'm never going to say my product's the best product in the world because mm-hmm. it might not make you feel like it makes me feel. So you have to experiment around. But what is most important is to know your farmer, know how they're cultivating that product that you're about to put in your body, know what groups they represent. Like if they support Joe from Sweet Leaf that donates to all kinds of compassionate care groups or Dear Cannabis, or do you donate to the veterans and really get to know your farmer? Because if you can understand that that farmer is a good person inside, the product that you're about to put in your body is probably pretty good for you. And then it's really up to you to discover what terpenes and what cannabinoids makes your genetic makeup feel good and helps you whatever ailments you're experiencing go away. So we can't, we don't have all the answers for the individuals. We just want to share with them what we know and lead them down a path that they can figure out for themselves. What is the most amazing cannabis for them? And you have a really clever and effective way, I think, of doing exactly what you just said, separating out, supporting your community sort of from the pure business element especially with your packaging. And I think you've been adding some seeds to the flower itself in a really neat way. Yeah. So I always talk about how magical this community is and, and how great it is to be able to grow cannabis my whole life. But really we want people to interact with the plant because the true magic happens is when you can grow your own. So it's been my push and, and my, my partner's push for um, the last few years is to find different ways that we can get the consumer to just grow their own so they don't have to buy it because the true magic happens when you, you start a seed in the ground and you can grow it and nurture it throughout its lifestyle. And then you harvest it, then you dry it, then you trim it, you cure it, and then you can share it with your friends. Then you can watch them smile and you can you can bring this happiness to them. And to feel that evolution of that plant that you created and then what it's been in creating with your friends is the true magic that's really just hard to explain. It's better to experience. So so many times people go into these retail shops and they they buy a jar of weed and they go, wow, man, this this white thorn rose is amazing. God, I wish I could grow that. So Rose and I came up with this idea that if we put a feminized seed in a seed puck that we attach to the lid of the jar of the strange strain that's in the jar, that now you could grow your own magic. And so mm-hmm. it actually won most innovative product award at the Emerald Cup this year and really highlighted the magic that could 
be found in a jar. And so um, it's kind of taking hold and people, what's, what's amazing for us is as, um, as a farmer is to watch people share their journey with us. So when they've, they've actually started the seed puck and when they've actually grown it up and um, the different phases of the year throughout the year, asking us questions on, should I give it more nitrogen or should, what should I do? It's not looking so good or it's looking amazing. And so that's fun to being able to interact. And while they're doing all this, they're learning so much about the plant and, and really falling in love with it, just like I did. And I think it speaks to the integrity of what you're doing too. A lot of businesses wouldn't even consider something like that just because they would see it as a, you know, oh, they're not going to buy my product if they can grow it themselves. But I think like you're talking about supporting the community, it really speaks to that point and how you're putting it into action too. Yeah, because like I said, what makes me feel good might not make you feel good, but I do know some amazing farmers like Ridgeline Farms, Canna Country, Hogwash Farms, Mood Maiden Farms. These are all people that I've grown up with that have been growing for the last 40 years that learned a lot during that time on their craft and um, really just want people to to experience their life's work. And so it's... Um, it's never about pushing just one of our products. It's about trying all the different products. And um, it's about this community because unfortunately, as the small farmer community is now suffering and, and funds are really short, so are all the different infrastructures that we built, like the volunteer fire departments, the technical rescue teams, the, the, the schools actually in the hills that we built in the originally that relied on us from year to year to donate money to keep them running and to buy them books and papers and pencils really are having a hard time now because there's no extra money. So not only is California affecting each individual farm, but they're actually affecting the whole emerald triangle community and i'm not putting just blame on them i'm just mm -hmm. want them to understand that the repercussions of what they're doing right now is affecting a thousands and thousands of amazing families no it's an honest response to what's happening and what the reality of the situation is um did you have any projects you wanted to talk about before i let you go or things that you would like to touch on or like speak to listeners about God, offhand, you know, I can't think of anything. I, I, I want to encourage everybody to really grow their own and not have to pay the taxes and to ex experience growing their own plant and what that actually feels like. Um, I want people to really reach out on either Instagram or, or so, uh, some kind of social media and really understand who their farmer is and what they're about. And, and most of them are really, truly, really friendly and will answer any questions that you might have. Mm -hmm. um, and really, really this year is just about scaling down, doing all the work ourselves and really um, just trying to survive up to next year. So um, when you're, when you're going to a retail shop, I think it's, critically important that you you ask the butt tenders about the small farmers sun-grown craft cannabis um in my opinion is some of the best product in the world and we're doing a, actually a study with columbia university moon made farms and i and ridgeline and canna country are all participating they've been testing our product for the last year and we're just uh, actually publishing a paper they're publishing a paper 
um, to show the difference between indoor and outdoor and why outdoor cannabis um, terpene profile is so much more prevalent than indoor and why it's just two different products and why outdoor cannabis makes you feel so amazing and lasts for so long. And so we're coming out with a lot of information and we're not attacking indoor. We're just saying they're two different products. And uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. But there's some amazing things that are about to hit hit uh, the, the market and hit the information booth. And so keep your eyes open and uh, really appreciate you and, and you pr- uh, providing a platform for the small farmers to really share their story and what we're doing. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time to come on. And I know you mentioned a couple of outlets, but where can they find your product and how can they get more information, social media wise, website? You know, most of the small farmers, including Huckleberry Hill Farms, um, uses Instagram as their platform. So at Huckleberry Hill Farms, um, Mm -hmm. you can look at all the flowers and stuff that we plant here and how we're doing things. And um, then up and down the coast of California, all the way from San Diego now to, um, to, to the Oregon border, you can find our product. And if you're ever in a different city and you, you need a quick answer of what retail shop, you can DM either Huckleberry Hill Farms, or you can ask uh, redwoodrootsfamily.com or, um, they'll always, they're my distributors. So they'll always provide you with the retail shops. But like in the Bay Area, we have seven stars and down uh, down in L.A., there's LAPCG. We're in the new Woody Harrelson, the Woods shop. Um, so mm-hmm. different different organizations and different retail shops are now really providing the consumers with uh, at least a few different products from SunGrown. And um, it's starting to catch on. So keep Absolutely. our fingers crossed. 